It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Sampdoria preview episode. It's our final preview episode of the 2022-23 campaign, because this is, of course, our final match of the season. I am joined by a guest to help me out with this preview. His first club is Sampdoria, but I am doing my best to try to convert him into a Napoli fan. And maybe that'll happen now that Sampdoria will be playing in Serie B, unfortunately for him. Steven Kashevich, welcome back. Great to be back, yep. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And I mean, I bring you on for the Sampdoria episodes, but you know so much about every team. I, I really need to start bringing you on more for just so you don't get bored talking about these two clubs, but... You are a Sampdoria fan, and I like to bring on you know the experts when previewing matches. Let's start with Sampdoria's season. Obviously, it didn't go the way Sampdoria fans wanted to. This is one of the historic clubs in Serie A that will be heading down to Serie B. And what makes it even worse, especially for you, I imagine, is that your city rivals, <laughs> Genoa, are coming back up from Serie B to Serie A. So we're not even going to get that fantastic derby that we like to have. But just what are your thoughts on Sampdoria's season as a whole and the club being relegated? It's been one of the worst seasons in Sampdoria's history. In fact, statistically, it might be the poorest season ever in Serie A. I was checking the other day and in terms of goals scored and points, this could actually be the worst season ever. So when you consider that, it's been utterly miserable (laughs) 
for anyone. <laughs> I mean, I can laugh, but I mean, if you didn't laugh, I guess you would be crying, although that might be taking it too far, depending on how much football means to you. But it's been a season of just nothingness. I mean, Sampdoria have won three games all season. They've struggled to score goals. The defence has been porous, wide open. And despite sacking Marco Giampaolo in October, last October, and bringing in Dejan Stankovic, not much has changed. He seems to have a lot of energy and he's pretty animated on the touchline, but he's chosen the same kind of veterans. He used the loan system in January to bring players in. Nothing has really worked. And it's been it's really difficult to find any kind of positivity in this season at all. 19 points so far with one match remaining. That's dead last in the league. 24 goals for 69 goals conceded. So that's a minus 45 goal differential. And that's basically your formula for relegation right there, let alone the coaching situation, as you mentioned, and the ownership situation, which is something we talked about previously. How much do you think that factored into the club being relegated? Ferrero basically holding this club hostage. It's a difficult one because you would think for the players, the background stuff wouldn't affect them. But I guess there was there was a period in the season where they had to defer their wages, which obviously doesn't help. Nobody in any profession wants to work without being paid. I guess all the chaos has definitely had some effect, but it's difficult to gauge exactly how much, what the ratio is or the proportion I mean, basically, it seemed from the start of the season, even from the opening game, there was a big decision, actually. At Atalanta at home in the opening game, there was a penalty call, which went against Sampdoria. And it seemed even from then that it was going to be a season of calls that didn't go Sampdoria's way. There was periods in games where they looked as they were competitive, maybe for 10, 15 minutes. Unfortunately, a game lasts much longer than that. And for the, for the rest of most games, they were either completely outplayed or they made like just incredible errors that you had to watch on replay to actually <laughs> believe that they happened. Ferrero has actually been out of the picture. He made a bizarre appearance at Marassi where he was hounded out of the stadium where essentially, let's be honest, he was supporting Roma, which he's always never hidden his, you know, that's his home city team. That's who he supports. And then he turned up at uh, Stadio Olimpico when Sampdoria played Lazio and he appeared to like kind of smirk or smile at the camera. I mean, he's a kind of uh, one of these presidents that's got, a, you know, an ego the size of Italy. I mean, I guess, I guess we can kind of compare him to some of the worst presidents in the history of culture, like Luciano Gauci, who was at Perugia, Zamparini, who was at, at Palermo. Italian presidents are almost like no other owners in football anywhere. They're just huge characters who seem to value their own worth more than anything else. And if Ferrero has to be up there with some of the worst, I really don't know how much of an effect it had on the team, but even from the opening few games, it seemed as though there was big problems. Obviously there wasn't any money because the club was in debt and debts mounted up and backroom staff and coaching staff and players couldn't be paid. So I guess it was an entire, a whole kind of, whirlwind maelstrom of just uh, disaster, basically. And I don't know, it's easy to criticise the management team and the players, but it just seemed as though 
all the odds, every factor was against Sampdoria this season and there was almost nothing they could do about it. I mean, I don't think anyone who supports Sampdoria, who follows Sampdoria, who has a soft spot for them, because I know that for many years they were kind of people's second teams because of historical reasons, the great teams of Vieli and Mancini, Lombardo, Vjekovod, Paluka, all these great players. And then they, they did actually have some good seasons after that. But for a number of years, there's been various problems Ferrero, of course, was jailed last year for financial crimes or alleged financial crimes unconnected to Sampdoria. I still think there's lots of things that will come out in the background about him. And that will obviously explain many things, why the club is in so much debt. I kind of feel depressed even talking about it, to be honest. I <laughs> don't know if it's even coming across well, because there's just been this kind of an inevitability from the start that it wouldn't go well. Last season was terrible and this season has been even worse. So... I think everyone would have preferred that Sampdoria stayed in Syria because, as we all know, Serie B is an incredibly difficult league and it could take many years to come out of Serie B. And, there's, of course, there's no guarantee that they will be able to construct a squad that will even be able to compete in the top half of Serie B at all. And if we look at Napoli's history, their relatively recent history, they were in Serie B for a number of seasons. They were in Serie C. So there is no guarantees regardless of status, history, you know, fan base at all in Calcio, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a perfect storm in terms of the ownership situation, which I suppose is related to the debt and that affects the transfer market. I mean, I was looking at the transfers that Sampdoria did this year and considering that they only spent five, six million euros on players, I actually thought they did a pretty decent job of scouting in terms of some of the guys they got in, guys like Sabiri and so on you know, Caputo's experience, but, you know, obviously it wasn't enough to keep them up. Earlier this week, we got news that there's new ownership. To me, I mean, this can only be good news for the club. I mean, obviously you don't want to be going down to SETI B. To your point, SETI B is very, very competitive, especially this season with the way the the SETI cheat clubs that got promoted performed, like Batty and so on. That made it even more competitive. The clubs coming down were some pretty big clubs coming down like Genoa. So, you know, it's going to be competitive. Maybe it'll be a little bit less competitive. I think especially if Cagliari win the playoff with Genoa coming up, Frosinone, not a huge shock. I mean, they had a fantastic season, but they're sort of bigger name clubs, I guess you can say. But with that quality coming up, it might make it a little bit easier for Sampdoria, but I think a lot will come down to, as is often the case with any any club that gets relegated, a lot will come down to you know, how they replace the players that they're going to lose over the summer. But have you looked into the new owners? It looks like it's two guys, mainly. Uh, Matteo Manfredi, who's the principal of Gestio Capital, and the name that everyone recognizes, I, <laughs> I guess, is Andrea Radizzani, who's the chairman of Acer Group, and more commonly known as the majority shareholder of Leeds United, who happened to also get relegated um, in the Premier League. Apparently, he wanted to put up Elland Road as collateral to, to buy Sampdoria. I don't know if that ended up happening or not. There's a lot of talk that he could sell his majority interest in Leeds to a company called 49ers Enterprises. I don't know if they have any relation to the American football team. I mean, you might know living, living uh, where you live, but... That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But have you heard anything? Have you read up on on these new owners? And 
what are your expectations going forward under the new ownership? The only thing we can be certain of is unpredictability. I've read up about Radritsani, not so much about Manfredi, and he's not very popular with Leeds United fans, that's for sure. I mean, anyone who's listening to this is a Leeds United supporter. I don't imagine we'll have many positive things to say about him. The club have just been relegated. If you look at his history in charge there, he made a number of questionable decisions that divided people. I mean, clearly he's put up the cash and he's found the money to save Sampdoria, so he will be remembered for that. And there was incredible scenes at the, the club headquarters in Genoa with the president, Marco Lana. You know, when the news was announced, I kind of think that the best deal would have been, and I think we mentioned it the last time we talked about Sampdoria, would have been Alessandro Barnaba and Merlin Partners. I think he's the owner of Lille in France. As far as I'm aware, he's done a pretty good job there to restructure debts and to kind of change the fortunes of the club. I personally think that he would probably, his group would have been the better choice. Radrizzani, I'm just not sure. I don't know. I think there are a lot more plot twists to come in this story. The fact that they avoided demotion to like the lower leagues, like the fourth tier was obviously a a massive thing because I, I think that, and I know people might disagree with me on this, Nobody seems to agree on anything in culture. If you look at social media, everyone's arguing about even the like minuscule things. But I think if Sampdoria had been demoted to Serie D, I think they would have found it almost impossible to get back to Syria. I mean, not ever, but it could have taken, what, five, ten years? It could have taken a very long time to find their way back. I guess Serie B is the best possible outcome. In this group of investors, there was also the... Qatari sports investment mentioned and I don't know how much they were involved in this deal, whether they will be you know, involved in the future whether they're going to put money into the club I guess that's a completely different story though because we know the investment from certain countries, certain groups is controversial just by even mentioning their name, so I don't know if that is a possible option as well if it is, that changes the whole story I think I mean if they're prepared to invest even to a small degree they could completely transform the club I mean there's obviously issues about Stadio Luigi Ferraris the Marassi there was plans for a new stadium a long time ago down by the harbour side I think kind of near the aquarium area for anyone who's been to Genoa and knows the city I don't know how you know feasible that would have been having been there and how difficult it would have been to place the stadium in that space The bigger issue, I guess, looking at the future and for all Italian clubs is Sampdoria, if they could own their own stadium or also Red Radrizzani is looking at the possibility of redevelopments at Marassi. That would also play a factor in the, you know, the kind of prosperous future of the club. At this moment, though, it seems as though there's a deadline for registration for Serie B, which I think June the 20th I read. So they have to meet that deadline to even play in that league. And I also read today that he possibly might not take full control until September. So if that is the case, then trying to piece together a a squad that will be competitive in Serie B is going to be pretty difficult. I mean, that's an, an understatement to say that. And of the current squads, I think there's a minimum of 10 players, which includes Harry Winks, Bruno Amioni, obviously Alessandro Zanoli, who will go back to their parent clubs. 
of the squad, there is some value there in the goalkeeper, Odero, who rejected the move to Nottingham Forest, seemingly in the January transfer window. Manolo Gabbiadini will surely stay in Syria somewhere. Tommaso Ogello will surely stay somewhere in Syria. So there's the, the prospect of you losing all the players that have value, who have kind of been decent, if you can even use that word, this season. You'll All the loan players will leave. So what you're going to be left with essentially is Qualiarella, maybe, and some of the Primavera. So I don't know. It depends on investment, how they pay the creditors, many things. I mean, at this early stage, it's difficult to know what will happen. But the fact that they have been saved is the biggest positive. But we don't know what will happen in the future, even the near future, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, you definitely do not want to go lower than Seti B. Even Seti Chi, it's so difficult to get back up because the number of divisions means only the winner of the division gets promoted. And then there's this crazy playoff. And it's even crazier when you go to Seti D because there's even more divisions. It's exponentially more difficult to get back up when you get down to these lower divisions. So that's a positive that they're going to stay in Seti B. But to your point, if they're not able to construct a competitive squad, and that could be related to the timing of when Raditzani takes over, then there might be some serious concern that they're heading down to Sedici just via relegation, right? I mean, again, it's a very competitive division. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, the summer is going to be really important. But yeah, it sounds like this ownership situation, while it's great that they have new owners, it still feels like they're playing a little bit behind, you know, everyone else has a head start on them in a way. And and that's not how you want to start your season. You mentioned Zanoli there. Obviously, he moved to Sampdoria on loan in September from Napoli. Last time we previewed the match between these two clubs, it was only a weekend, so we didn't have much of a sample size. Actually, we pro- that was probably his first game, I think it was, actually. Yeah, his first game at Sampdoria was against <laughs> Napoli, and I think he played 45 minutes in that match. Obviously, now he's had many other opportunities to play. He's been the starter for most matches, actually. You know, a lot of Napoli fans are are looking at Zanoli and how he's done at Sampdoria and feeling pretty good about him returning to back up Di Lorenzo with that experience under his belt. What can you tell the listeners about his half of the season at Sampdoria? I think certainly in the, the second half of the season and the last maybe six or seven games, it's almost like a, kind of someone's flicked a switch and he's upped his game. He had a fantastic assist for Qualiarella to keep up his great goal-scoring run at Milan. like He really showed all of his skill and pace that we we know he has. And he actually scored against Empoli as well. He seems to be more comfortable as almost a right winger rather than a defender. And I mean, his defending is still kind of a work in progress at this stage. He... I honestly think that he could be a possible option as an you know an attacking player on the kind of right side for Napoli, but we don't know what the plan is because we well we do we don't know who the coach is going to be for one thing. So will he even be in the new coach's plans? I also saw that inevitably he's been connected with a move to other clubs, possibly on loan. But he's certainly upped his game, and although he's still only twenty two, he's he's really a like his speed, his skill has really been impressive. One of the very few impressive 
you know, things for Sampdoria in recent weeks. Certainly the assist at Milan was just outstanding. So the problem, of course, is would he actually play any games for Napoli? Would he get the opportunity to play? And where will he play? I don't know if Irving Lozano will stay or not, but in a more like advanced or offensive position on the flank is where I think he would be most effective. Yeah, Stankovic played a 3-4, was it 3-4-2-1 or a 3-4-1-2 formation? 2-1, I think. So he played on the right side of that midfield four. So basically as a wing back. Um, so as you know, as long as Napoli's new coach plays with a back four, or I guess you could say more so with the same style that Spalletti played with, which I think is an important consideration for De Laurentiis in terms of who he hires, then I think he can probably play that role because Napoli's fullbacks actually play like wingbacks anyways. In possession, it's like Napoli play with a back three and one of those fullbacks is always getting down the, the line. Whether he could play as, as an outright winger is an interesting question. And to your point, I mean, the way he was making those runs forward for Sampdoria and, and becoming an assist man, it certainly seems like he can. And also to your point, if Lozano has moved on, there appears to be some interest in the Premier League. Who even knows if Politano will stay, then you know, maybe he can provide that type of flexibility or be a bit more of a another utility type player that can slot into a couple of different positions as needed. But yeah, I agree. A lot of that will depend on which coach is hired and and their evaluations of players and so on. He even scored a couple of goals for Sampdoria, which was good to see. You know, two goals and two assists, I think, in his half a season, which is not bad for a, a player who really had no experience in said, yeah, right? Like he was with Napoli, but didn't get to play. I think he got the odd substitute appearance here and there. So yeah, that'll that'll be another interesting one to watch. But he's definitely coming back with just more experience in general, right? Like he, he played in every match in, in the second half of the season or since he made that move to Santoria. They eased him in, as you would expect, with a new transfer. So the first four or five matches or so, he didn't play a whole lot, mostly used as a sub. But then he basically took over the starting role, and he was playing the full 90 minutes in most matches. I think one match he played 76 minutes, something like that. And a couple of the matches where he didn't start, he still came on at the half and played the entire second half. So at the very least, he's coming back a more experienced player, and we'll see how how he fits in at Napoli or if, as you said, he gets another loan spell. Let's move on to some starting lineups, which is next to impossible to predict. So I'll just ask you to kind of do your best. I, I think at this point of the season, it's really about, I mean, especially as the away team, anyone can play really, but I think the starting point for your predicted start at 11 is really just injuries. Like who's not injured first and then how does it fit into the formation? So give me your best guess as to what we might see from uh, Stankovic. This is a guess, yeah, because I don't know if he's going to stick with the, the veterans that he's played like consistently. Kusans, the midfielder who was on loan from Venezia, has apparently left the club to get treatment for an injury, so he's out completely. Fabio Qualiarella didn't train with the main squad. He's a possible injury. I mean, it would be fantastic if he played. I think that would be really fitting like if he played. So I guess he has some choices to make in terms of like whether he actually gives the youngsters some playing time or not. I, I mean, I'm going to guess that the lineup will be virtually the same as Sassuolo. So Turk and goal, back three of Oikonomu or Gunter, Neutink and Amione. 
Zanoli, Winks, Paluetti, maybe, or Rincon. He seems to have gone with Rincon in every game. Augello, and then maybe Laris, although Malagrida might play. And then up front, Qualiarella and Gabbiadini. Sam Lammers appears to be out of the picture. Heze seems to be out of the picture as well. So, I mean, I'm hoping for kind of obvious reasons that Qualiarella actually gets to play in front of the Napoli fans. I think that would be really quite appropriate. Yeah, who knows if he ever plays again in Serie A. So it would be great for potentially his last Serie A game to be at the Maradona. I think he would certainly enjoy that as well. Although, I don't know if if the fans would want that because he scores like the most spectacular goals against those two. <laughs> Even though, you know, he may be uh, getting up there, but he is up there in age at this point, but he still has that spectacular goal in him. Let me give you my best guess on a Napoli starting 11, which I actually think is a bit easier to predict just because of the, the injury situation at Napoli. And also I think Spalletti is going to play his best 11 for a couple of reasons. One, there's still a match to be played and hopefully to be won. I think if Napoli win this match, we finish the season on 90 points, which is a very good total. Obviously, we would have liked to beat the 91 point set by uh, Sadi, but I feel like, you know, and I've mentioned this on previous episodes, that if that was really Spalletti's objective, he probably wouldn't have rotated as much as he has over the past few games. He's even been giving the players a lot of days off. Like they've been training starting on Wednesday or Thursday. So they've they've really taken their, their foot off the pedal. But it's also our final match of the season. And I think he's going to want his best 11 to get, you know, the reward of playing in front of the home crowd. Even though Spalletti has never talked about having sort of a preferred starters and bench players, he considers them all starters, he does actually have his preferred starters, right? The guys who he played more than the guys who didn't play. So I think he's going to go with his best starting 11. And, you know, that's not to say that the other guys didn't contribute. Of course they did. I mean, we wouldn't have won the Scudetto without contributions from guys like Simeon and Raspadori and so on. And I think they're probably going to get time off the bench because with the injuries, like Mario Rui is out, Oliveira is potentially out, Bolzano's out. Politano's potentially out there actually aren't that many bench positions left so I think just using his five substitutes he'll probably get everyone time to play I mean guys like some of the you know the backup goalkeepers or Zadadka Gaetano maybe they won't all play but then also unfortunately Kim Min Jae picked up his fifth yellow card after so many matches I think it was 17 matches he played on a yellow card suspension he finally got that fifth yellow card in, in the last match. So he's going to be suspended for this one, which could mean that we've seen the last of Kim Min Jae and Napoli as well, if you're following the transfer rumors. So that's one position that'll change. But with that, let me give you my predicted starting 11. I think we'll see Alex Meret in goal again. Again, started most matches. So I think he'll go back in goal. I think Golini played the last one. Spalletti has been very loyal to Juan Jesus. So with Kim out, I think we'll see a center back pairing of Rachmani and Jesus. Di Lorenzo and I think Berezinski is going to play on the other side at fullback because if Mario Rui is out and if Oliveira is out, he picked up a blunt trauma in training, which has happened. I don't know what's going on in training if these guys are just running into each other. (laughs) But we've had so many. We had uh, had Ndombele and Politano both had blunt traumas prior to the last match again i don't know if they ran into each other if there were separate incidents 
Then we had the same thing happen with Di Lorenzo, which I think is why Berezinski started the last match, just to be precautious because there's no need to force a guy to play if he's not 100%. And now the same thing has happened with Oliveira. So we're kind of running thin at the back, which makes me think that Berezinski is going to play a left back, which would be pretty interesting because then he would be matched up against Zanoli, who plays on the right side of the Sampdoria field. So the two guys that we swapped for each other will be paired up against each other. I don't think we're going to see any rotation in the midfield because they're all healthy and, again, rewarding the players who deserve to be rewarded. So Lobotka starting in the center of the midfield with Piotr Zelensky to his left and Andre Frank Zambangisa to his right. Likewise, I think we'll see Kvicha Karaskhelia on the left wing. Elif Elmas will return from suspension. He served his yellow card suspension last match, so he'll start on the right wing in all likelihood. And then I think we'll see Victor Osiman start at striker. And then, as I said, I fully expect Spalletti to use all five of his substitutions. So I think at some point we'll see Raspadori and Simeone come on. That'll probably give Spalletti also an opportunity to give Cavada and Osiman a bit of a curtain call, right? Let the fans cheer for them as they're you know, running off the pitch in the 70th, 80th minute, something like that. I think Tanguy and Dombele will replace one of the midfielders, probably Piotr Zielinski. Again, Zielinski may or may not be his final match at Napoli, although the rumors today were that he's willing to take a pay cut to stay at Napoli, which is not something you see often and kind of refreshing, actually. I mean, he's got a young yeah. child. He makes decent money. He's happy there. You know, great place to live, obviously. So kind of wish more people thought that way. We'll see if these rumors are even true, but that'll both give Zielinski an opportunity to get an ovation from the fans. And it'll also give Ndombele one final run out there because I think everyone's pretty certain that Ndombele is not going to be redeemed, at least certainly not for the 30 million euro yeah. price tag. And even then, Tottenham were paying most of his salary. I just don't see that working out with him staying. I think we might even see Golini replace Meret in goal at some point. You know, again, give Meret an ovation. I'd actually love to see someone like Marfella or Dacia come off the bench just so they can say <laughs> that they played a few minutes during this season because, again, who cares what the result is? And then the fifth substitution will be one of Ostegard or Zedbin or Gaetano, Zadatka, one of those guys. It may depend on how the match is going. I mean, Zedbin seems to be the most likely because we're so slim on the wings. But depending on, on how the match is going, if we have a lead, then maybe Ostegard for the same reason as, as the goalkeepers gets a run in there. Okay, so I don't think we need to spend any time talking about tactics for this match. I think <laughs> nobody really cares about that. It's the final match of the season. Everything's decided. So what I wanted to do is spend the balance of the episode talking about the Serie A awards because there were quite a few Napoli players nominated, quite a few won awards, maybe even more should have. Let's start with the coach of the year, which was Luciano Spalletti. I don't think anyone would have argued with that choice, given how the season went. For some reason, there's a couple of awards that don't have nominees. Most of the categories have three nominees. The coach of the year and the MVP, they just tell you who wins. With that said, if you had to nominate two other coaches, which is my excuse to let you talk about something other than Napoli and Santoria. <laughs> what other two coaches would you have nominated for the Coach of the Year award? This has been such a dominant season by Napoli that the the usual suspects or the you know the biggest clubs. I don't think there's a case for any of the coaches for the biggest clubs to be nominated. I mean, Inzaghi has been great in cup competitions and should be rightly applauded for taking. Into to the Champions League final and they won the Coppa Italia. 
Stefano Pioli, I don't think he can be in the picture at all. Massimiliano Allegri, I don't think he can be mentioned at all either. So I guess you maybe have to look a bit further down. Maurizio Sarri probably deserves a mention. Other than Napoli, Lazio have played the best football in Syria, I think, from an objective stance, although I know there's no such thing as objectivity, is there? <laughs> Everyone has got their own agenda or everyone's got their hot take. I'm always like, why does it always have to be hot takes? Can you not have a freezing cold take or just a lukewarm take? Why does it always have to be like sizzling and angry at the world? But anyway, so Sari, I think, definitely deserves a mention. Some incredible football and taking Lazio to second place. I think they deserve second place, which I think they'll probably finish there. I guess you have to look further down the Syria to look at other coaches. I mean, I guess these could be considered outsiders. So probably Paolo Zanetti at Empoli. I think he did a fantastic job. Empoli seem to do extremely well with their selections of their like loan players. They get in very good loan players who might not even play you know, every game, even if they play like part of the season or their substitutes. Everyone seems to have a defined contribution. And he obviously has got the best at the youth system, which for many years people talked about Atalanta as the best youth system in Italy. I mean, Empoli has to be up there. Baldanzi and Fazzini are the latest to emerge and they get chances to play, which is one of the big you know issues in Italian football, that young players don't often get the chance to actually even make it onto the field. So Zanetti, I think, has to be mentioned. Tiago Motta, for someone who didn't have a lot of Serie A experience, and was probably a quite a risky choice for you know a big club. And you know, Bologna is one of Syria's biggest clubs, I would say. He did a great job and he got the best out of a lot of players. Stefan Posh, I have to mention Lewis Ferguson as a as a Scot. I think he's had a great season. So shout out to Lewis Ferguson. I think he's been brilliant this season. And I think he deserves a move to a bigger club. I mean, why not Napoli? I mean, I really think he is somebody that has a lot of potential to move to a higher level. Even if he's not a starter at you know one of the bigger clubs in Italy, I think he has he has a you know really really you know great potential to do well. So Tiago Motta and also I, I think it's worth mentioning uh, Raffaele Palladino at Monza because uh, under Stroppa they made a pretty terrible start. They invested a lot in the squads. They looked the best equipped of the promoted teams to do well. And Palladino is a very young coach doesn't have much, you know, top flight experience, but he he got the best out of a lot of players. Piscina, obviously, the hometown captain did well, and Carlos Augusto, the left-sided uh, wing-back, had an incredible season. I mean, I hope I'm not missing anyone out, but I think those guys should be mentioned. But, I mean, Spalletti was far and away the top coach of the year. I mean, I don't think anyone can dispute that surely <laughs> <laughs> well to your point that you're gonna find someone on twitter that'll dispute anything but you know that point about the empoli youth system that's exactly why i want pietro accardi to replace juntoli if he ultimately leaves because what they've done there is just incredible I, my biggest i guess regret or disappointment with napoli is the handling of the youth system it's like we've become so adept at scouting for the senior team that we haven't even given the youth team any attention. And I mentioned this again last time, so I won't complain too much about our, our Primavera team being relegated, but that one hurts me. But I think you've actually, you hit the nail on the head in terms of nominees. I, I, I followed a very similar sort of logic. I And I landed on Sadi for sure as one of them, you know, getting Lazio back into the top four. 
with a draw or better against Empoli in the final round, they would guarantee second in the table, which is a fantastic accomplishment for him, I think, in his second season in charge. It's reminiscent of what he did at Napoli, right? Like he has this fantastic starting 11, but perhaps does not have enough depth on the bench to to compete in multiple fronts and multiple competitions. And he loves to he loves to call that out as well. <laughs> My second nominee was Raffaele Palladino, just for being a newly promoted club, having to start almost five games behind everyone else because of the way Monza started the season and just riding the ship and then leading them to a very impressive finish in the you know, middle of the table, very easily survived, right, with plenty of games to spare. So I had Palladino as my second option. And then I had an honorable mention for Thiago Mota as well. Again, to your point, first season, well, I guess he's coached with a couple other clubs, but like brief appearances, sort of, I guess second full season as a Serie A coach, but just the way he had that Bologna team playing, and we saw it last round against Napoli, how well they play, and especially in the second half of the season, all of the results they got against top clubs. I think it's only a matter of time before he makes a move to a bigger club. PSG has always been kind of linked to him as a former player. So, yeah, definitely an honorable mention, Thiago Mota. Okay, let's move on to the Defender of the Year award. Two Napoli players were nominated, Giovanni Di Lorenzo and Kim Min Jae. The third nominee was Teo Hernandez. Kim was announced as the winner on Friday. Did Serie A make the correct decision, in your opinion? Definitely. I mean, I, I would have to admit that I'm probably a bit biased because I, I lived in South Korea for six years. And I certainly wouldn't say I'm an expert on Korean football, but I, obviously Kim Min-jae was somebody that I was able to watch, especially in the national team, for quite a few years before he even made the move to Fenerbahce. And he was someone who was always touted in Korea as being capable of playing in the top leagues in Europe and it's still a bit of a surprise that it took so long for somebody. I mean, I don't think it was a gamble to sign him, you know, so I, I guess it's often said, oh, it's a risk to sign players from Asia who've played in the K-League or J-League, but I don't think that's the case and it hasn't been for a number of years. You only have to look at the, the Japanese players who are doing well in England and in Scotland at Celtic to see that there is great potential there. I mean, yeah, Kim min has just been outstanding. I think it took him a couple of games to adapt, as it would for anyone, but he has every single characteristic that you would want in a defender. He's lightning quick, his ability to quickly move the ball, and his pass stats are quite incredible. Like, he rarely like makes bad passes. He always finds a teammate, and it's not always like backward passes or sideways passes that just bore everyone. He often, like connects the midfielder attack instantly and you know he's got a bit of grit about him as well like we saw that challenge against Milan uh, against Brian Diaz and the celebration and in the air he's pretty much unbeatable as well I think it can't be disputed I mean Di Lorenzo I think would be the other one that he has to be up there it's been mentioned so many times that he's underappreciated and you have to agree with that I mean he's been outstanding he's he's not like a kind of overly vocal guy he seems to do things in quite a measured way but he's almost been uh right back right wing back right winger he's almost you know made the right flank his own you know he's been so good he has to be up there too Tio Hernandez I think has had a great season also but I don't know if he's quite reached the level that he did last season when Milan won the, the title Inter's DeMarco I think deserves a mention I think he's been brilliant 
And he's another guy that I know he divides opinion, especially with Inter fans and maybe it's, you know, fans of the Italian national team. I think he's really been outstanding. I mean, especially in, you know, cup competitions, but in Syria, he's, he's made a big contribution as well. And somebody who's, I guess, way outside maybe those guys is uh, Bashirotto uh, Lecce, who is quite a, an incredible, you know, figure who could be on the move somewhere. A guy that, yeah, wouldn't be put out of place in WWE. You could see him in the, the ring with Roman Reigns, you know. I mean, his, <laughs> the guy is a physical specimen, to say the least. But I think he's worth mentioning because with Umtiti, he, they, they basically played a huge role in keeping uh, Lecce in Syria. So, but yeah, Kim... Kim, 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 Kim has to be the main man. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Japan. I mean, De Laurentiis must have picked up on this as well, because every time he gives a press conference, he keeps saying, oh, we're going to sign a player from Japan and the U.S. as well, which that is a big part of the marketing, the international marketing that the club does. But they don't just do it for the sake of signing a player from another country. So to me, that means they've already been in negotiations with someone or some players from those countries and It'll be interesting to see who they bring in. Basquiroto is the type of guy that, uh, you know, if he demands a move, nobody's stopping him. To your point. <laughs> <laughs> just out of just out of pure fear. <laughs> but um, yeah, I tend to agree with your assessment there. I don't think Teo did enough this season to warrant winning uh, the Defender of the Year award. He's always great in attack, but in defense, not the greatest. And this is the best defender award not the best attacking defender award i also thought that he suffered a little bit with france going all the way to the final of the world cup i think that just took a bit of a toll on him and there was about a month period there where his play dropped off and then he found his form again i agree on di lorenzo i think he's the best right back in the league like teo he's contributed quite a bit in the attack although more solid at the back in my opinion than teo and i wouldn't have objected to di lorenzo winning this award it's been a fantastic leader as well. You know, the only captain after Maradona to win a Scudato at Napoli. And as you said, the way he did it, his leadership style just worked really well. But I have to agree with you. For me, it's Kim Min-Jay all day long. He was just incredible for us this season. Right up there with Osimen, Kavara, and Lobotka in terms of the most important players of the team, even though everyone's important. But these guys were really, really key to winning this Scudato. He fully lived up to that nickname of the Beast. And I'm hoping and praying that somehow we can find a way to hold on to him. But at this point, I think it's more likely that he's going to be moving on at the end of the season. Let's move on to the midfield where Napoli were not nominated or no Napoli players were nominated. The three midfielders that were nominated were Nicolo Barella, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, and Adrian Rabiot. Barella was ultimately named the winner, which I can live with that. I think he had a fantastic season. But do you think Napoli's midfield trio was snubbed a little bit in this category? Definitely. And I'm sure you'll agree with me. I mean, absolutely. What did Stanislav Wobotka do to be omitted? Like, does he have secrets on somebody? Or what? <laughs> did, did he make some kind of big mistake that we don't know about? Yeah, who did he o- sleep with? <laughs> overwhelmingly, he was the best midfielder in Syria. I think even if you're the most biased, partisan, prejudiced supporter of other clubs surely well for me anyway in my in my opinion for what it's worth he was the best midfielder clearly Anguissa also should have been mentioned I think Zelinski maybe not so much I mean maybe it's a controversial opinion but I wasn't that impressed with him this season I thought he really started like a kind of blistering start and then he kind of faded away a bit so maybe that's an area that they're they're looking at them um, Napoli 
I definitely agree with you that Barella is a good choice. He had a great season. He's an outstanding player, technically excellent, scored some good goals and always catches the eye in every single game. Milinkovic Savage, I didn't think reached kind of the same level as he did in previous seasons, although he played very well. And Rabio, again, from a very you know objective position, I think it was his best season for Juventus. He scored, became a scoring threat, which he wasn't before, and you know transformed parts of his game. But I mean, it seems like a really glaring, you know, omission to leave out Wabok and Anguissa. I mean, I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I agree with that assessment as well. I think as much as I love Zielinski as a player, and I would love for him to stay at Napoli. I don't think he quite did enough to be considered one of the top three midfielders in the league. On Sergei Milinkovic-Savage, I mean, you can make an argument that Luis Alberto was the better of the two of them in, in Lazio's midfield. I mean, this was one of his less consistent seasons. And I don't know if, you know, it's he's always had transfer rumors swirling around him. So I'm inclined to think that that's not what affected his play. But I felt like he was a bit less consistent this season than he has in previous seasons. And I agree. I think both... Lobotka and Ngisa, I would have rated as having a better season than Rabiot. And to your point, you know, this was probably Rabiot's best season in the Juventus shirt, but that's because he wasn't great in the previous seasons, right? So, <laughs> yeah. You know, if we're talking about most improved, sure, throw him in there. But if you're just talking about the best midfielders in the league, you definitely have to put Lobotka in the mix. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm hating on Juventus players, but it does feel a little bit like the league kind of went out of their way just to include a couple of them. And I get it. You know, they want to have, you know, cover as many clubs as they can. I think for the same reason, that's probably why Skorupski was nominated as one of the three goalkeepers instead of Meret. People have varying opinions on Meret, but statistically, he probably deserved to be nominated. Provedel was a deserving winner. There's no denying that in that category. But, you know, when I saw Fajoli announced as the winner of the Best Young Player Award, <laughs> I tweeted a question asking if this was part of the plea deal because there is absolutely no way that Fajoli was more valuable than Scalvini was to Atalanta. And I like Fajoli. I think he's a very good player. But for me, that one's not even close. I, I even have Baldanzi rated higher than Fajoli in that category. So, yeah, I think something's up there with, you know, they had to get a few Juventus players, you know, some people mention this as well. It's they have the biggest fan base in the league. You got to kind of cater to the fans a little bit. Final, I suppose I can live with that. I mean, I don't want to sound like a greedy Napoli fan. We collected all of these awards, and and I'm here complaining about who didn't get awards. Speaking of which, let's move on to the striker category. The three nominees were Rafael Leao, Lautaro Martinez, and Victor Osimhen. Stephen, this was a stacked category in terms of nominations, but surely they got the right winner in this one as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to see past Ozyman as the best striker and the best player of the season. I mean, again, maybe, as you said, maybe they wanted to spread out the awards. As we talked about before, Liao is not strictly a striker. He's more of a winger. I know that's stating the obvious, but if you're specifically talking about a striker or a forward attacker, whatever you want to use, then perhaps it's not the best category for him to be included in. Latoura Martinez had a great season again. I kind of would have also included maybe Dia from Salernitana. Like he just propelled, you know, Salernitana away from the relegation zone and scored some amazing goals, including one against Napoli, which obviously kind of was a big disappointment for everyone. But you can't, you can't deny it was a you know a technically brilliant goal. But Ozymen has to be 
the correct choice in this category, definitely. I mean, if we think he scored every type of goal and some of the goals were just breathtaking, and if we think of the Scudetto and what it meant in the season as a whole, people will not forget, especially both goals against Roma, home and away, just exceptional. Yeah, these awards were introduced for the 2018-19 season. And in all four seasons, the Capocannoniere won the best striker yeah. award. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably not surprising that Osimhen did it. And as I'm sure you're aware, Qualiarella won it for Sampdoria in 2018-19. Chiro Immobile won it twice, 2019-20 and last season. So three of the previous four winners were Napolitano, which is pretty cool. And then uh, Cristiano Ronaldo won it in the 2020-21 season. Leao and Lautaro, I think, both had very, very good seasons, but they also both had poor stretches, whereas I feel like Osimhen was just the most consistent of the three all season long. He scored 25 goals in Serie A, despite missing a handful of games due to injury as well. I think the others had more appearances than Osimhen did, and 24 out of the 25 were scored from open play, because up until the very end of the season, when we were really just trying to get him to win the Capocannoniere, he did not take the penalty kicks. It was either Zielinski or Politano or Cavada. The only surprise for me, I think, actually, was that Osimhen was given this award and not the Serie A MVP award, because I think you can make a pretty strong case that he would have or should have won that one. Instead, Cavada was named the MVP. What do you think of that selection? Because Cavada definitely had an incredible season, but teams kind of figured out how to stop him for the final 10 or so matches. It's a difficult one because it's like last season they chose Liao as the MVP when you could have chosen somebody else. Maybe you could have chosen Giroud or Hernandez. It seems as though they've gone for like the the most dazzling or exciting or you know the, the one who brings the most fans to watch games, which is fair enough, I think. I mean, personally, I would have gone for Ozyman as Ozyman is the best player. I think clearly he was the best overall player in the league. Kvara Scalia made an incredible debut slightly faded away but I don't think that should detract from what he did earlier in the season perhaps it would have been better if he Kvaratskhelia was the best young player because let's face it he's you know he's still a young guy and he's hopefully got many many years to you know improve and you know excite everyone so I think that would have been probably that would have been fairer if he was the young player and Ozymin MVP I mean I always think like I'm a big film fan and when I think of like films like how do you define what the best is because it's so subjective like if you're a fan of somebody then of course you're going to be biased again you know and say well if we only look at this aspect or that part then someone is better than somebody else but I don't think there can be any doubt that Ozymane was the best player so it's a kind of a curious selection in a way but I think that Farah Celia deserved an award of some kind how much do you place in these awards, though? Like, how much, what meaning do they have? You know, I, I don't know. Like, what meaning do you place in any award? Yeah, they probably mean almost nothing. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I, I'm just grateful because they give podcast producers content <laughs> to talk about at this time of the year. But I think, you know, I feel like the league, they felt like both of these players deserved an award. Yeah. And if you were to give Osimen the MVP, then you probably have to nominate Cavada. I mean, assuming to your point, if they didn't, I thought he should have just gotten the Best Young Player Award as well. That would have been an easy way to ensure they both get the award. If you were to put Cavada in the best, let's call it forward category, because I think that's what they mean, not striker, then I don't think he beats out Leao and Lautaro. I think then Lautaro gets the award. So this way, they both get the award. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to remember is 
if they gave Cavada the best young player award, then which Juventus player gets an award? <laughs> I really do feel like that played <laughs> into the decision. It's like they, they put all their cards on the table and shuffled them around. How can we make the most people the most happy? And and maybe that is part of the, the main objective of these awards because other than that, they, they really don't mean a whole lot. What's interesting is that if you look at the players and the coach who won awards for Napoli, there were four, Spalletti for coach of the year, Kim for defender of the year, Osiman for forward of the year, and Cavada for MVP. There's a potential for all of them to not be at Napoli next season. I mean, we know that Spalletti will definitely not be back. That's already been confirmed. As I said, it seems more than likely that Kim will depart at the end of the season. He'll probably go to Manchester United. Hopefully we can hang on to Osimen for another season. The Laurentiis has certainly set the price high enough to force him to stay in a way. And then Cavada is the most likely to stay. And the reports are actually that he's extended his contracts for another year. So it'll expire in 2027. They've bumped up his salary, I think, to two and a half million euros a season now, which is still, in my opinion, a, an absolute bargain. But hopefully, you know, if we can keep hold of Osimen and Cavada, then I think we're in a still pretty strong position to repeat as champions next season. Of course, a lot will depend on who comes in to be the new coach, which is still very, very much up in the air. Every day, these names are swirling around. The guys are coming in, they're coming out. <laughs> I mean, your guess is as good as mine, even though I've given my best educated guess on, on who the next coach might be. So all of these guys will get their trophies, I assume, ahead of the match against Sampdoria on Sunday. Of course, the team will lift the Coppa Campioni d'Italia at the end of the match. There's going to be all kinds of festivities in and around the stadium. It's actually just also wanted to mention, it's great to see so many English-speaking Napoli fans that, that we correspond with on a daily basis on social media flocking into the city and taking pictures with players and fans and Tommaso and doing all of that great stuff, going to the Morales and the Corteira Espanoli and everything. So that's that's been really great to see. All right, Stephen, that is all we have time for today. But as always, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks again for having me on. Hope it's not been rambling on too much (laughs) (laughs) no 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 it's it's been great it's always great to get your your opinions and you're so knowledgeable on the sport so we'll definitely definitely be bringing you back on soon so you can find steven on twitter at s kashevich you can find me on twitter at joe underscore fisket d5 and you can find the podcast on twitter instagram facebook and patreon at forza napoli pod i will be back soon to review this match But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Semper. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.